If you would, take out your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah. I was about to say the Gospel of Isaiah, and that's not too far from the truth. As we mentioned last week, because of so many um, clear pointers to the person and work of Christ, and because of uh, the fact that so much of the New Testament uh, goes back and pulls from Isaiah, it could really be referred to in many ways as the fifth gospel. Um, But as we turn now to God's word for the next few minutes, let's turn to him in prayer and ask his blessing upon our time together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we would be blind and are blind until you open our eyes and we would be deaf and indeed are deaf until you open our ears. So, Father, as we spend time now in your word, would we see your glory? Would we hear your truth? Father, would we know you? And because of knowing you, would we love you? And because we love you, would we do what you command? With a humble reliance upon Christ. Father, your word before us, it indeed is our rule And your Holy Spirit is our great and supreme teacher. Father, may your glory be our chief end. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're in week two of our four-week series, What's in a Name? The Fourfold Name of King Jesus. Yaroslav Pelikan a scholar of the history of Christianity and Christian theology, in his magnificent book, The Christian Tradition, A History of the Development of Doctrine, he wrote this, and with a name like Yaroslav Pelikan, I'm like, where in Central Europe is this man from? And he's from Akron, Ohio. But he died a few years ago, and so he's the late, and I would add at times, great Yaroslav Pelikan. He says this, The oldest surviving sermon of the Christian church after the New Testament opened with these words. Brethren, we ought ought so to think of Jesus Christ as of God, as the judge of the living and dead, and we ought not to belittle our salvation. For when we belittle him, we expect also to receive little. The oldest surviving account of the death of a Christian martyr contained this declaration. It will be impossible for us to forsake Christ or to worship any other. For him, being the Son of God, we adore, but the martyrs we cherish. The oldest surviving pagan report about the church described Christians as gathering before sunrise and, quote, singing a a hymn to Christ. As to a God. The oldest surviving liturgical prayer of the church was a prayer addressed to Christ Our Lord, come. And this is how Pelican summarizes it. Clearly, it was the message of what the church believed and taught that God was an appropriate name for Jesus Christ. Indeed, the earliest confession of faith emerging from the scriptural witness was Jesus is Lord. And to say Jesus is Lord 
was to say, in essence, Jesus is God. And both the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, as you know, are Trinitarian. And yet their focus, even in terms of the number of words, is on the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. For the Christian, the reality that Jesus is God is sort of a no-brainer, isn't it? It almost goes without saying. And yet, today in our text, we will see that one of the names of this child born and this son given is Mighty God. Now, why was this particular title included? It was written, as Paul says in Romans chapter 15, for our instruction that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And what does this particular title mean, mighty God? Well, let's find out. Here's Isaiah, the prophet, writing 700 years before the birth of Christ in the 8th century B.C., And here, all throughout Isaiah, here in particular, we hear these prophecies of Christ, his person, and his work. Last week, we started reading in chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, and in a moment, I'm going to read verses 6 and 7, because that's where our focus is going to be. But when you have time, maybe later this afternoon, read chapter 8, because chapter 8 ends like this. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. That's how chapter 8 ends. But as you know, chapter 9 begins with a turn, but there will be no gloom For her who was in anguish. Join with me as I read verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Did you hear the verbs that we read? They're past tense, not because it will immediately happen but because it will certainly happen. And as we read, you should have noticed once again a parallelism, a Hebrew parallelism, a child born, a son given. The child is born, he is human. The son is given, he is divine. And these four royal names express both divine and human qualities. They help us to be assured that this coming Messiah is indeed Emmanuel, God with us, as we read in Isaiah 7.14. And these, uh, these, these four titles help to reassure us of this fatherly care and peace that will 
be brought about. And speaking of peace, you will see progressive, perpetual peace. There will be an increase of his government. It will have no end and it will bring about justice and righteousness and peace. And it's all because of the zeal of the Lord, his passion, his urgency, his power and purpose are coming from his heart. So we need to move this week from the, wise, from the wonderful counselor to the mighty God. From a wise plan to power to carry it out. From, from no advice needed in terms of the wonderful counselor to no assistance needed in terms of the mighty God. So we're going to focus on this second title or name that Isaiah gives us in describing this child and this son. And we're going to do that by asking and exploring three questions. Who is this mighty God? How does this mighty God save? And finally, where does this mighty God rule? Who is this mighty God? Well, why the title mighty God? Hebrew, El Gibor. A mighty man, a warrior, a valiant hero who fights battles for others, we read elsewhere in Scripture. In scripture. And mighty is included, I believe, in view of the military references. Look with me at verses 3 through 5. Um, uh, uh, divide the spoil, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire that's a battle image and here comes the mighty god and throughout the old testament we will find mighty god as a title for the lord himself and we know that when you see lord in all capitals it's yahweh it's the covenant name that god has made known to his people and you see yahweh and the mighty god Related. Earlier we heard in uh, Jeremiah 32, O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Turning further into chapter 10, you will see a remnant will return to the mighty God. A remnant will return to Yahweh, to the Lord. A remnant will return to the mighty God. And all throughout the New Testament, of course, is the witness that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ of God, is God himself. It's interesting, in Matthew 13, there's this question that is posed of Jesus. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Wonderful counselor, mighty God. And think with me through the gospel accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, his authority, his miracles. Think of the transfiguration, which we will get to in Mark. Think of Peter's confession and Thomas's confession after Jesus has returned from the dead, has been resurrected. My Lord and my God. Who is this mighty God? It's Jesus and what did Jesus, as mighty God, come to do? Remember, Jesus is the Greek for Joshua, which means God, the Lord, is salvation. The Lord saves. Indeed, according to Matthew, 
what Jesus was to be named. Jesus, right? The son of Mary and Joseph was to be Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And according to Paul, as you often hear in the assurance of pardon, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Well, how does this mighty God save? But before we ask that question, we really need to step back and ask a more fundamental question, don't we? Saved from what? Saved from what? You know, years ago, when there was maybe a common agreement uh, that men and women had fallen short of God's glory, and there was a common cultural understanding of, um, of who God is and what sin has done and why the world is messed up, and you could ask somebody, hey, brother, are you saved? And they may respond by saying, uh, no, I'm not, but I, I need to be. Try asking that same question now. Are you saved? Saved from what? Saved from our enemies. And who or what are our enemies? The Old Testament describes Israel and Judah's enemies. And notice the progression again from 8 into 9. There's gloom and anguish, contempt and darkness. And yet... There comes glory, light, and joy. The gloom that must come because of unbelief is contrasted with a future salvation more wonderful than the previous judgments were terrible. Indeed, all of Isaiah is about the coming judgment and the coming salvation. Well, what are these enemies? Well, is it enemies of Israel in terms of the Assyrians or is it the enemies that we see Scripture unfold? Enemy number one, public enemy number one, sin. With its penalty being the wrath of God, its power and its payment. And enemy number two, what is the payment of sin? Death, sin and death. Man's final enemy. No escape, or is there? I mean, what is it one out of, how, how's that statistic go? 100 out of 100 people will die. 10 out of 10 people will die. 1 out of 1 people will die. The enemy, of course, is death. Well, how is death there? Because of sin. Sin is an enemy and death is an enemy. And Jesus comes and Jesus saves by defeating our enemies. Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. We read in 1 John chapter 3. And he came to deliver all of those who uh, in fear of death were held in lifelong slavery. Jesus came to destroy and deliver. And brothers and sisters, does that sound very sentimental? Does that sound Norman Rockwell or Thomas Kincaid or Hallmark? Jesus came to destroy and to deliver. He came to destroy the work of the devil. Sin and death are the work of Satan, the enemy of God. Jesus came to rescue hostages like you and me. Hostages that because of our own choice and our own nature were 
being held by sin. Held in the grip of the fear of death. This past week I had the opportunity uh, to have breakfast with a retired FBI special agent who lives in the Cincinnati area. And most of you know if you watch the news that the FBI is front and center of some of the things going on in our world. Well, in talking uh, with this man who ends up being a believer, it was a fantastic breakfast, he's the former commander of the FBI's hostage rescue team, the elite of the elite whose sole business is going after bad guys in order to rescue people. Jesus, as we will see in Scripture, is the one member of the hostage rescue team who doesn't run from gunfire but runs toward gunfire to rescue his people, to rescue his hostages. Because Jesus defeats sin and death, his enemies, our enemies, through his obedience, through his crucifixion, and through his resurrection. And he defeats the penalty of sin, and we see that we are justified. And he defeats the power of sin, we see that we are being sanctified. And indeed, if death is the payment of sin, the wages of sin is death, Paul writes, then glorification indeed shows us that even the payment of sin has been defeated. The mightiness of God we see here. The mightiness of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, the mightiness of Jesus in creation, sustaining creation, in revelation and redemption. We heard earlier read in Jeremiah, is anything too hard for God? In fact, it's twice in verse 17 and and, and verse 26 of chapter 32. Is anything too hard for God? What's your situation right now? Outwardly, things may be looking good, but inwardly, what's your situation? Are you doubting that Jesus can change you? Are you doubting that the Spirit of God who resides in those who trust Jesus for salvation, are you doubting that that kind of power is not available? Is anything too hard for God? We often minimize, I think, what it takes to change a heart, don't we? Look at all those people around us that we, oh God, would you change them? Would you, would you fix them? But all we have to do and look in the, is look in the mirror and say, God, would you, would you change me? And sometimes it does seem impossible, doesn't it? Lord, I can never get free from this sin. Lord, this relationship is so broken, it's beyond repair. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Ask yourself that question and answer the question. Well, this mighty God doesn't just save. He also rules. He's the Lord and the Savior. He's the Savior and the Lord. Well, let's take a look at the saving rule of God. Well, where does this mighty God rule? 
We talk about his increase of government. Well, where is he ruling now? Well, think about the macro, the big picture. We've been talking in our Sunday school classes about the sovereignty of God, the providence of God. God is sovereign over all things, nature, politics, economics. God is sovereign and ruling. Well, children, if God has got the big picture under control, what else does he have under control? All the little pictures. It's going from the greater to the lesser. If God, if nothing is too hard for God to rule the world, is there nothing too hard for God to rule in your own particular situation? Indeed, in our confession of faith that we often answer together from the Heidelberg Catechism, our only comfort, our only security in life and in death is what? In Jesus Christ. Not a hair will fall from our head without His permission. Where does this mighty God rule? The answer is that He rules in your midst because He is Emmanuel, God with us. He's not distant. He is with us. Go with me back to Mark 4, which you heard read earlier. The disciples, many of whom are professional fishermen, they are sailors, they are comfortable on the sea. They're in the boat with Jesus. And you notice in Mark's description, they go from being so afraid of the storm to being filled with great fear because of Jesus' power. There's a perfect storm on the sea. Because what you see is when you've lost your pride and you cry out to God, there's rescue. I mean, it had to be humiliating, didn't it? Don't you care? Aren't you going to save us? These are professional fishermen, guys that know the ropes. And they're at wit's end. And they cry out and the Lord hears them. And He calms the wind and the waves. Jesus has power to rule creation and indeed to save them. Physically as well as spiritually. And in conquering sin and death or Satan... Jesus rules in the midst of his enemies, as Psalm 110 tells us. And notice how the disciples change. After the resurrection, after Pentecost, Jesus is with them by his Holy Spirit. They no longer fear, but rather are filled with love and joy and courage and confidence because Jesus is with them. Brothers and sisters, when you and I have seen with the eyes of faith someone die in our place, you are changed. I saw an interview just yesterday on the news of a woman who was sheltered by a man who took the bullets. They were going for her. 
her life is changed. She all but acknowledged somebody died instead of her in her place. And she is forever grateful now just to the family of this man. Because this man lost his life protecting her. Well, Jesus, the King, the mighty God, is with His people and for His people. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer 26. Jesus Christ is King. And what does He do as King? He subdues us, right? He, rest, he, he uh, conquers us. He, he, um, he, uh, he takes care of our enemies, His and ours. He restrains and conquers them. He He rescues us. He rules us. He defends us. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to know that this King Jesus is our mighty God. He is our refuge in the midst of the storms of life, both the rescue from eternal death as well as from daily misery. And yet, when we look at the big picture of salvation as Scripture reveals, It is upside down, isn't it? Because it's not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, this rescue is effected. And it reveals God's surprising strategy. A child born in weakness who defeats all human and indeed spiritual power. So in your struggle with the guilt of sin and the power of sin, His salvation may not look like what you've been looking for. However, will you accept being humbled as part of His rescue? Indeed, possibly even the primary aspect of his rescue because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble we read both in Peter and in James and we are called therefore to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God so that he may lift us up in due time are you crying out to God for help but then not wanting to 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 believe the help he's showing you could it be that the help that is arriving comes in the form of humility and humbling yourself before God. Well, we've asked the who, the how, and the when question. Well, now let's ask the what question. We've seen that Jesus is the mighty God, and as mighty God, He both saves us and rules over us. These are good answers on a test to those kind of questions. Now, kids, do you guys have a favorite test? Do you like true-false test, multiple-choice test, uh, short uh, fill-in-the-blank? What, what's your favorite test? Well, here, I think, is the real question that we need to ask ourselves. And I'm afraid it is not true-false. It's not fill-in-the-blank. It's not short answer. It is short essay. Do I hear a groan? Yes, short essay. Here it is. Describe your relationship to this mighty God, King Jesus. Is it cold 
Or is it intimate? Is it distant? Or is it close? Is it non-existent? Is it growing? Well, let's ask what, one more what question. What is your present testimony? The early church had a testimony, right? Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord. Well, what is the present testimony of your life? Is it Jesus is God? Is it Jesus is Lord of your life? Is it Jesus is the mighty God calling the shots in your life? Is the mighty God that scripture and indeed all creation points us to understand that Jesus is the king, he is the mighty God, is he ruling in your life? Oh, brothers and sisters, we need one another's testimony internal to these walls and the community outside needs our testimony as well that Jesus is not only the wonderful counselor he's also the mighty God who came comes to save and to rule us for his own glory and for the good of his people if Jesus Christ the mighty God is with us and for us here's the question who can be against us Because your answer to that question reveals the identity of your God. Not your confessional God, not your professional God, what you confess or profess, but your functional God, who you really are resting and relying upon. Martin Luther said it, we read it last week, whatever your heart clings to or confides in, that is your God. Brothers and sisters, this text is calling us to rest and rely upon Jesus Christ, the mighty God. Let's end by hearing these words of the Lord through the prophet Zephaniah. In Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Brothers and sisters, that was good news declared before Jesus showed up. Now that he has showed up, he is with us by his spirit and he has promised to return and bring us into the full and unbridled presence of God. Brothers and sisters, rest and worship and delight in this mighty God because He delights in you through Christ. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that our Savior and our Lord cannot be contained by just one name. We thank you that we are seeing through your word that he is indeed the wonderful counselor. That he is indeed the mighty God. We will see that he is everlasting father and he is prince of peace. Oh Lord, what's in a name? Father, we thank you for putting into the name of Jesus, that name that is above every name. We thank you for putting so much into his name for the encouragement of your people, for the conviction of your people. 
Father, help us as your weak and frail people to be strengthened now by this glorious truth that if this mighty God is with us and for us, who indeed can be against us? For we pray in his name. Amen. Christ rescues us and he is our